The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking tonight at the Ten Commandments. And specifically at the fourth commandment, I'm going to read all the Ten Commandments as I've been doing, and then we'll zero in on the fourth one. And God spoke all these words. This is in Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and made it holy." Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the fourth commandment we have seen, we've looked at, verse 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, it says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now as we look at this, there are six aspects to this command. This is just review tonight, here at the beginning. First, that we should remember the Sabbath. Secondly, we should do so by keeping it holy, set apart unto the Lord for his sacred use. Third, that we should work and work hard doing all of our labor in six days. Fourth, that we should rest, that is, do no work, on the seventh day. Fifth, the command is for everyone. Everyone within your gates, your manservant, maidservant, even your animals. And sixth, the command is patterned after God's creation, original creation. This is what we've seen in the command. Now, as we look at what we call the first table of the law, it has to do with our relationship with God. Jesus summed up all the law and the prophets in two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. I think it also sums up what we call the first table of the Ten Commandments, which would be the first four commandments. Not the first five, even though there are ten. But there are four commandments focused on our relationship with God. And then six that would be focused on our relationship with other human beings. In these four commandments, we see, I think, pretty clearly a progression having to do with worship. 
The first commandment has to do with the object of our worship. Whom shall we worship? We shall worship the Lord and him only. We shall love him, the creator of the ends of the earth. We shall worship him, the only true God. The second commandment has to do with the mode of worship. How shall we worship him? And it answers the question negatively. We shall not worship him with anything we make with our hands, any idols. We could extend that to say anything we make in our minds either, but we shall not worship an idol. By means of an idol, by means of man-made things, we shall not worship this God. Thirdly, the manner of our worship. There shall be a holy reverence for the name of God. We shall not take the name of God in vain, but we shall reverence it and keep it in honor. Thus did the Lord pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, may your name be hallowed or esteemed or held in honor around the world. And so this is also the manner of our worship as well. We worship in reverence to the name of God. We tremble at his name and we worship his name and desire his name to be extended. The fourth, then, would have to do with the time of worship. A time is set for people who are physical, who live in a physical world, who live in a cycle of days, of mornings and evenings uh, that we call a day uh, and that have been arranged, I think, by God in a seven-day cycle called a week. A time is set for corporate worship, and that is the Sabbath. I think this is a good way of looking at the first table of the law. The object of our worship is God. The mode of our worship is not with anything human, but rather, I think, is a response to the revelation of God. Manner of our worship is a reverence for the holy name of God. The time set by God is the Sabbath day. Well, then the question comes before us. Is the Sabbath still binding on Christians today? Well, you can see if we were to arrange the first table of the law this way, it seems an absurd question, doesn't it? Of course it's still binding today. Of course there is a time set for worship for us to gather together and focus on the Lord. It must be so. And I think that that's what I come to. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all the cases of conscience have been resolved, does it? Should we go to a restaurant or not? What about watching a ball game? All of these things. We'll get to that, maybe, at the end of this message. But it is clear that the Sabbath was a perpetual command of God. And don't you, I hope you do, feel more comfortable with all ten of the commandments now back, restored the way it needs to be? You know, we're not going to be those that say, I, I obey all nine of the ten commandments. But we're going to say that clearly there are ten given and that for a reason. Well, we've also seen by way of review that man has two sinful, opposite, extreme reactions to this Sabbath regulation. One is simply to ignore it as though it were nothing, as though it didn't exist, a light thing, a meaningless thing. I talked uh, recently to, at the men's breakfast Saturday morning, I was talking to uh, one of the recent graduates, or assumed to be graduates at Duke, and he was telling me about some of his classmates, you know, they're all, all the seniors are getting jobs or have already gotten their jobs lined up for when they graduate. And uh, he was telling me about a friend of his that is taking a job in the financial world. And he can expect to work 90 hours a week for the first six months of his career. Seven days is a given. The question is how many hours per day. Uh, it's just endless work. So basically he's just going to be working nonstop except when he's sleeping. He'll be sleeping and then back at work again. Uh, and this is the very thing, this machinery. It reduces, I think, a human being to a machine. Just somebody you plug into the corporation and they just crank out work. Well, that would be one extreme of reaction to the Sabbath regulation. I don't think that 
that financial company has any concern whatsoever for the Sabbath day regulation. And if you were to go to your boss and say, now, wait a minute, the Lord said in the fourth commandment, he, he would probably advise you to get a different job. I mean, you're not going to make it in this industry if that's your concern. Well, uh, what he does with his Sabbath day, I think, is something that he's going to have to be concerned about. don't know even that he's a Christian. But um, that would be one extreme. We saw it in the Jews collecting manna on the Sabbath day. You remember they went out and there was no manna on the ground, and they didn't know why. So they, were, they considered the Sabbath a light thing. Or the man who collected firewood on the Sabbath, and God told them to put him to death. Or the Jews of Jerusalem uh, in the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, who totally disregarded the Sabbath, buying and selling as though it were any other day of the week, and it was one of the many reasons that God evicted them from the Promised Land. And then after the restoration from Babylon, we saw the merchants camping outside the walls of the city, you remember, and Nehemiah said, if you stay here again, I'm going to lay hands on you. In other words, I'm going to arrest you and throw you in jail. And so we saw the attitude of cavalier nothingness, that the Sabbath means nothing, it is nothing, that's one extreme. But then we also saw the Pharisees going the other direction with what we call legalism, in which extra regulations were added that were not in the scriptures. Uh, the boundary fences you know, of concentric circles, etc., so that you're never even close to breaking a Sabbath uh, regulation because you really can't do anything legally at all. Um, and so all they ever saw was, for example, Jesus healing a man, and he's carrying his mat. We saw that. He's a mat carrier on the Sabbath, not a healed testimony of the power of Christ. But a mat carrier. Can't have mat carrying on the Sabbath. And they were able to conclude very definitely, no question about it, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Well, Jesus refuted that very directly when he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I get to say what breaks the Sabbath and what doesn't, and I'm not breaking it. You're breaking the Sabbath in a different way, but I'm not breaking it. And Jesus, in a similar way, said, the Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And what that means is that the Sabbath was made to benefit us. It was made to, to strengthen us in our relationship with God. It was made for our benefit. We weren't made for its benefit. And so Jesus claimed very clearly the authority. And we saw those equal and opposite extremes, legalism and license. We have another sinful response possible, and that is the Malachi response. This is grudging, irritated obedience. Drudgery, right? Malachi, a little out of context talking here about the tithe, but I see a lot of similarity, frankly, between the regulation concerning giving and the observance of the Sabbath. I actually see a lot of similarity between the two. I think many who have testified that they have yielded to God's leading in both uh, the issues of tithes and offerings and the issue of Sabbath keeping said it was tough at first, very tough. It was hard to bring their, their lifestyle back under an obedience to the word of God, but in the end it was a delight. And so also I see it. But Malachi 1.13, you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously. And I think that that can happen also with uh, Sabbath keeping. It's a burden that you sniff at contemptuously, and you keep it, but just because you have to. All right, now as we looked at Christ's ministry, was it a ministry of restoration or removal when it comes to the Sabbath? Did Jesus simply restore the Sabbath to the way it should have been, or did he remove it entirely so that it's no longer a concern for us? 
If you look at the various passages, and there are many of them in which Jesus is interacting with the issue of the Sabbath, I only ever see restoration and healing and fixing the problem rather than saying there's no more Sabbath. Jesus could have said there's no more Sabbath if he intended to, but I don't think he intended to. Rather, he's asking this kind of question such as, which is lawful on the Sabbath? He asked that question several times. It's a null set if he intends to remove it. Do you see that? If there, if there is going to be no Sabbath, then why would he even raise the question? One could argue that it was a dispensational issue, and he's still under the law of Moses, which soon those who are freed from the law of Moses by his blood would not need to ask. And I suppose that would be a hermeneutical approach, but I don't share that approach. I feel very much that if Jesus had wanted to remove such a significant thing as one of the Ten Commandments, he would have told us so, don't you think? And he did so with uh, the eating or the dietary regulations. That was a very significant part of the Jewish uh, lifestyle. And Jesus clearly declared all foods clean. So it's okay to have pork and all that, despite the fact that it's clearly forbidden in the Old Covenant. And so therefore, the approach that I want to take toward Christ, as I read it, is that basically Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, is the Sabbath actually one of the least of the commands of God? Well, I wouldn't think so. But the issue of fulfillment is a big one. We're going to get to it later. Was the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ? As some say in the, from the book of Hebrews. And that is a valid question. But I guess I want to take this approach. With something as significant as the Ten Commandments, what we call the moral law of God, all the others clearly moral, there's no question about it, and that we're not free to covet or free to commit adultery or free to murder as much as we like now that we're no longer under the law. This would seem absurd to us to think that way, but we treat the Fourth Commandment differently. I guess in that way we would look at it, read the Ten Commandments, and we would say, we need to stay at our post until given another command from God. And I'm telling you that other command is not found in the New Testament. There are certain things that are said. We're going to cover them tonight. We're going to talk about each one of the times that it comes up in the New Testament. But can you find for me a place where it says the Sabbath has been fulfilled, you don't need to do it anymore? Or rather, do we see the Sabbath reinterpreted through the resurrection of Christ, reestablished as what we call the Lord's Day, and then shown to be what it truly and should be always, celebration of God and of his word and what he's doing. So I, I think we're going to take this statement that we're going to stay at our post until the commanding officer tells us otherwise. And I don't see anywhere that he does. Another interesting verse from Christ is a future prediction that he gives us in Matthew 24, 20. Matthew 24, what's called the little apocalypse. And there I believe he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And he says, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Interesting. That's yet in the future, way beyond his death, his resurrection, um, at least up to 70 AD, if not beyond. I'll tell you Matthew 24, very difficult chapter to interpret. But at least this much we know, it's well into the New Covenant era. And Jesus says, just pray that your flight will not take place on the Sabbath. All right, now, let's get to some of the New Testament epistles. Some of the verses in the New Testament that have to do with the Sabbath. Let's start with Galatians 4. Look in your Bible, if you would, to Galatians 4, or you can just look on the sheet. One of the reasons I've given you the sheet is so that you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But um, Galatians 4. First is this issue of Paul's exasperation with the Galatians. But my question is, is the Sabbath in view here? That's my question. 
Galatians 4, 9 through 11. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing, he says in Galatians 4.10, special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Some people bring this up as germane to the Sabbath discussion. First of all, let's notice right off the top that the Sabbath is not mentioned directly here. Okay, can we at least say that? The only way that the Sabbath will come in here is with this idea of observing special days. But my question here is, can you imagine Paul being exasperated with the Galatians that they're having a day of worship focused on the Lord? I'm so frustrated with you that you're doing this. It just bothers me that one day a week you're meeting together for corporate worship. It especially seems absurd when later in 1 Corinthians 16, as we're going to say, see, at, on the first day of the week, every week, set apart money for the offering. He's going to talk about this. So what he's exasperated about with the Galatians, he commands to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16. Doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? Could it be that Paul's not talking about the Sabbath at all in Galatians 4, but rather those Jewish feast days, uh, such as the Passover and other things, which I think are fulfilled in Christ, part of the Old Covenant ceremonial law, and they were part of the truck that the, that the Judaizers were bringing and saying, you've got to obey these, you've got to observe them, and if you don't, you're under the wrath of God. He's saying that is no part of New Covenant worship, and it frustrates me that you don't understand grace enough to see it. I think that lines up better than saying that he's talking about the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments here. Perhaps in a weightier sense, we look at Paul's statements on freedom in Romans 14. In Romans 14, he's dealing with the issue of people who are weak in faith and are struggling with the issues of such things as eating meat sacrificed to idols and other debatable issues. Here again, we come up against the issue of Jewish ceremonial law and the things that they were required to do under the temple cult, you could call it that. I don't mean cult as a false religion, but just the temple system of worship. And they didn't know how in their, what you could call first century transitional era, are we still going to do that? Do we still go? What do we do? Do we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? What do we do with this? How do we work it out? And so he's dealing with this. And uh, if you want to look at Romans 14, there's a longer quote in there that we can look at. Paul's general approach is, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make it stand. He's, he's saying that, and you have no right to judge somebody else on a debatable issue. That's what he's talking about. But again, the question that comes here is, is the Sabbath in view? Or is this, again, more of that Galatians 4 type of thing? I think it's a little harder to just toss it aside here and say this cannot be the Sabbath. I think it might be, actually. And I think it's exactly for Romans 14, for that, the sake of this text, that the Southern Baptist Convention changed the wording on the Sabbath to saying that you must do what is, what is consonant with or commensurate with your own conscience. Uh, they get it out of Romans 14 because they feel that they're bound in this matter and can't judge somebody else by what they do on a Sabbath day to quote Colossians 2. But let's look at the verse and see what it says. Uh, look at verse 4, Romans 14, 4 and following. It says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now here it is, Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. You see that? So verses 5 and 6 might have to do with the Sabbath. One person esteems one day better than the other. In this light, it could be that he's thinking of the Sabbath and that the one day is, is a higher or better or holier day than the other six. And so people read this that way. And I believe it's a valid way to read this text. But is it the only way? That I don't know. We all have to acknowledge and admit that the Sabbath is not directly in view here. It's not, I mean, or stated. It may be in view, but it isn't openly stated. This is about the Sabbath. Now, concerning the Sabbath, Paul could have said, but he doesn't. He just says one person esteems one day higher than another. Every other person considers every day alike. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, I believe whatever you come up with in Romans 14, that is a transferable principle. You should be fully convinced in your own mind concerning the Sabbath. And later, in verse 23, I think I've given it to you there on the, out, on the outline, whoever has doubts, he says, is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from, uh, from faith. I think I just cut it uh, beginning at the verse 4. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's very important, isn't it? If you violate your conscience, if you do something you think is wrong, it's sin. It's just the way it is. But another major theme of Romans 14 is, who are you to judge someone else's servant? So there's enough complexity to the Sabbath, is it fulfilled in Christ or not, etc., that we have no right to stand and judge and say, you must do all the things we do or all the things I do on a Sabbath day. You just set yourself up as another Pharisee. And that's the very thing I don't want to do in the pastoral ministry. The last thing I want to do is say, you know, I really love those Pharisees. They just had everything clearly kind of figured out. And I really want to emulate what they did on the Sabbath day. I can't imagine doing that. And so I think Romans 14 frees us from the burden of having to go around judging what other people are doing on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm already kind of quoting, to some degree, Colossians 2. Let's look at that. Colossians 2, I think, 16 and 17, is the clearest of Paul's statements concerning this issue. Why is it? Because he mentions the Sabbath day here. And now, unlike the Galatians and Romans passage, which we say, is the Sabbath in view... It is. Look what it says, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Well, that's a very strong statement, isn't it? And based on Colossians 2, 16 and 17, many just feel that the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Calvin did this, John Calvin. He basically said that, that strict Sabbath keeping was part of the Old Covenant. The reality now is found in Christ. It's fulfilled. But yet, try to miss church in Geneva, okay? So clearly, uh, you know, based on some other scriptures that we'll get to in a moment, uh, going to church was still in view in Calvin's mind. So however much it was fulfilled, he still thought it was reasonable to have one day in seven set apart for corporate worship. And very much like we do, it happened to be Sunday. So uh, it seems that uh, he at least acknowledged whatever it means that these things are a shadow, um, the reality is in Christ, that doesn't mean we're free to do anything whatsoever we want on the Sabbath day. For example, would it be appropriate for a church to discipline somebody who committed adultery on the Sabbath day? And, and how far would it get if they said, now wait a minute, you can't judge me for anything I do on the Sabbath day. It says so right here. Well, that wouldn't work at all. So clearly there must be a limit to let no one judge you by what you do on a Sabbath day. 
Or could we extend that to not assembling together for worship? Well, I think so, based on Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which we we'll get to in a moment. But that definitely we are to assemble ourselves together and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we have already voted people out of this church based on the fact that they have forsaken the assembling of, the, of themselves together when being able-bodied. And we think this is a reasonable thing to do. If there's a chronic pattern of not, as, not assembling with us for worship, they are violating our church covenant. Frankly, our church covenant is not the issue. It's the scripture behind it that's the issue. And so they are violating the scripture. So can we look at Colossians and say that it, it's uh, complete freedom from any regulation or, or any kind of concern on the Sabbath day? Can we say, I don't need to worship anymore? I don't need to go to church on Sunday because of Colossians 2, 16, 17? I don't think so. Well, what is it saying? Well, I think it probably is part of that same question that's raised in Galatians 4 and in Romans 14. We're in a new era now. And the way that the Jews used to worship on the Sabbath, the way that they did things, their, their regulations, the whole Phariseeism thing, he said, don't, don't be concerned about that. Those things are past now. The Pharisees hold on, on the way they interpreted the Lord's Day. It's over now. So don't let anyone judge you by how you worship on the Sabbath, I think is what we want to say. So my question about Colossians 2 is, is the Sabbath abolished in Colossians 2? And I don't think it is. But rather, just like Christ is seeking to do, it's more adjusted and cleansed. The final New Testament verse, I, I knew it was just ridiculous to think we could get through this whole handout tonight. But maybe if I talk really fast like this, we could get through the whole thing, but there's just no hope. So I'm going to have to go home and explain why we're doing Sabbath next week, but that's all right. You know, we'll just, we'll just keep on looking at it because, you know, I think this is so vital for us to understand this. So vital. But let's look, open your Bibles to Hebrews 4 and let's try to understand what's happening here. In Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 is a little puzzling. Hmm. I'll tell you what, I see the book of Hebrews as such, an, such a unity that I really want to begin at Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, but we just do not have time for that. And those of you that were tracking the men's Bible study that we did, it took about a year to get from Hebrews 1 to Hebrews 4. So um, we can't do that. Um, reasonably, we could start in the middle of chapter 3, but we can't do that either. So let's just start at chapter 4 and just read what it says. It says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And that those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Now here's the verse, key verse, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone, verse 10, who enters God's rest 
also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now let me cut to the chase here. I don't think that this addresses the question of a weekly Sabbath. I just don't. I think in one sense it does, but in another sense I don't think it does. Why? Because the context has to do with salvation. It has to do with entering into Christ by faith. Again and again, as you read this through, it has to do with entering into the rest that is Christ. And it says immediately, if you look at the key verse in 9 and 10, it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. By the way, some Sabbatarians or those very, very strong on the issue of the Sabbath point to this as clear command that we have to continue with the Sabbath uh, observance because it says there remains a Sabbath rest. But the issue of there remains, it fits into the, the language style of Hebrews 4 saying there is yet a rest. And the yet has to do with it wasn't fulfilled back in the old covenant days when they took, went into the promised land. That's what remains. We're still looking for an, a rest into which you enter. And it's still here today, isn't it? Because whenever the gospel is preached, what's offered to you is entering into God's rest by faith. And so there remains and will continue to remain for the people of God this Sabbath rest. Another way to look at it is that we have not yet been fully saved. And so we have to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yet there's a hope for a final rest with God in heaven forever. And so in the end there remains for us, for the people of God, a final completed rest in which we will totally cease from all of our labor and our striving. Now, does the weekly observance of the Sabbath fit in here? Well, I think in one sense it does because it does mention it in verse 9, but I don't think it's really what the author has in mind. Instead, he's saying there is a rest yet to come and a rest that can be presently enjoyed through faith in Christ. I think that's what he's saying. Now, in the Old Testament, there were two different rests of God spoken of. There was the rest of God on the seventh day after he had finished the physical creation, that rest. But then there was another rest that had to do with entering the promised land. Look on your handout there and you'll see Solomon's prayer of dedication. And this is very interesting. It says 2 Chronicles 6.41. This is Solomon praying for the temple. Now understand, what is the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? What's the difference? Permanence or portability. I mean, God can carry the temple, but no one else can, okay? But, I mean, the, the temple is a, a fixture. It's not moving anywhere. And so, therefore, there was a sense that God would choose in the tribes of Israel a place for his name. And he would put his name there. And everyone would go to that place where the name was. was. And until the te temple was built, there was still a sense of God on the move. And David felt that, didn't he? He said, here I am in this, this cedar-paneled palace, and God's still in a tent. It's not right. I, I want to I get him into his rest. I want him to settle down with us. And Nathan said, you know, this is a good thing which you want to do, but it isn't you that's going to build it. Okay, but there is that symbolic rest that came when the temple was built. Do you know what I'm talking about? God built the temple through the, through the son Solomon, and then at the time of prayer, Solomon prays this, Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place. Do you see that? Isn't that striking? Come now at last and rest. And you know, the, the glory of God filled that temple and God rested there. But you know, it wasn't finished yet, was it? It was a symbolic rest, but it, the journey wasn't done. 
The Jews weren't finished. The Gentiles weren't evangelized. The earth wasn't yet filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there remains yet a future rest of God, yet to come. And that's got to be heaven when salvation is finished. Now, how does the Sabbath fit into that? I believe that our weekly observance of the Sabbath is, is an indicator by faith that we're still waiting for that day when we will rest from all our labors as God has rest, rested from his. When we will be done working out our salvation with fear and trouble. There is a day, by the way, when you'll be done working out your salvation. Isn't that joyful? You'll be done with sanctification. Done with wrestling with sin. Done with listening to really long sermons. I mean, done with all of those things. Actually, they're going to get even longer in heaven, but you won't mind. You'll enjoy it. It'll be a delight for you. Done with all of those things. And our weekly observance is just a reminder, not just looking backward at creation, but looking ahead to our final future rest when we'll be done at last. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.